Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. On this week's episode, we welcome Principal Advertis Investment Management, Jamie Rode, to discuss how LPs are using data to guide investment decisions in VC funds. Jamie explains how she got her start working in the investment industry, initially at Bloomberg, as a research associate, and how that impacted her views on how data can be used to guide investment decisions. Next, Jamie shares why she decided to join the family office of Virtus and how the firm decided to model itself after the endowment investment model while transitioning from public to private investments. We discuss how the historical data her firm has gathered on the VC industry has helped them decide on where to invest their capital and what types of return profiles her team is underwriting towards. Next, we cover Jamie's thoughts on fund reserve strategies and why valuation and ownership-sensitive investors tend to lose out in the long run. Finally, Jamie shares some amazing advice for newer LPs to consider before making their first venture fund investment. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Jamie Rode from Virtus Investment Management. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, I appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on the venture capital markets these days and how limited partners and family offices like yours are using data to help assess VC funds for potential investment opportunities. But before we get started, I would love it if you can give our audience a brief background on how you ended up in the investment industry and how you ended up at one of the biggest family offices on the investment side of the equation. Sure. So I graduated from Drexel and joined Bloomberg, spent about four and a half years there, worked on the data analytics side and then the equity research side. And I really enjoyed how you could use so much data to essentially create research or create different types of tools and do different types of analysis there. But what I did realize while being there computer was going to take my job. So I was like, let's find something else that is really pushing the intellectual curiosity side of my brain where a computer may not take my job. And so I I found my way after getting my CFA to join uh, the family office in 2015. And ironically enough, and I'm sure we'll get into the conversation where now there's always this fear about chat GPT taking my job and having to, to adapt. But I think that's kind of a a huge life lesson too, where you always need to be flexible, adaptable, and using your intellectual curiosity inside of you to to make sure that you're staying on top of new trends. Yeah, for sure. I had the same realization when I was working on Wall Street on the trading desk, seeing all the, you know, algorithmic trading and quantitative trading uh, machines, basically replacing the day-to-day block traders. I was also scared of that and figured I needed a career change. So it's funny that we came to the same realization, except you were on the data side already at one of the largest financial data organizations, Bloomberg, and I was on the traditional capital markets financial trading platform. But uh, Bloomberg, you spent almost five years and eventually you made your way over to Virtus Investment Management. And you said you started out as an investment analyst in 2015 and you eventually made your way up to principal over eight years, which is quite amazing. But for those in our audience that aren't very familiar with Virtus, do you mind providing a brief background on the firm's origins and how it evolved over the last 20 years? Yeah, so Virtus is a single family office. Uh, we manage capital for generations seven, eight, and nine, now 10. And so our mandate is to compound capital at the highest rate possible, while the family can tolerate about a max drawdown of 10 to 15%. We run a very much endowment style model. So when I joined in 2015, uh, that asset allocation was uh, slightly different than it is today, but we were taking much more of a traditional investment approach. I think a great example was on the hedge fund portfolio. Uh, we used sharp ratio to do a lot of investment decision making when it came to investing in hedge funds. But 
When I joined, we spent the first year and a half really revamping the public markets portfolio, which is about half of our asset allocation today. And we realized that volatility is not our definition of risk. It's permanent loss of capital. So why use the volatility metric when analyzing risk in hedge funds? And so we spent the first year and a half, like I said, revamping that public markets portfolio. Um, The hedge fund book is run as a fixed income substitute today, uh, no longer an equity-like substitute today. And then the long-only portfolio is very concentrated, super volatile, Um, Also invested in passives if we can't find concentrated long-only managers. And then we moved over to the private side of things, and that asset allocation is split uh, a third real estate funds, third buyout funds, and a third venture funds. There's a legacy oil and gas portfolio there, but it's very much endowment where 95% of what we do is fund investing. And so my journey of being there, you know, in 2015 was really seeing how We went about using data to, I would say, guide our investment decision-making process, not necessarily using it to predict the outcomes. And that was really, really interesting and kind of perked the intellectual curiosity I was looking for in my next position. I mean, quite incredible place to be. First off, investing on behalf of generation seven, eight, and nine. There's a lot of legacy there to protect and preserve while also learning from the past though. Uh, you know, the family offices uh, mentioned started in 2004 based in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, you know, investing when it comes to VC funds is also not that easy. And you've chosen to go through the fund approach while, you know, complementing the endowment style model for the overall portfolio risk assessment through publics, real estate and buyouts, and obviously venture, as you mentioned. But it's that data-driven approach to venture investing that I find the most interesting and differentiated, especially for a family office. You know, I've read that when your team invests in funds, you're typically writing the first institutional check into a startup fund that is focused in geographies and networks that have consistent outlier production. So how is data that you have access to over the years really helped in making those decisions? And can you provide some examples of those quantitative outliers to share with their audience so they understand what you're looking at? Sure. So our journey to with venture definitely changed over the years. You know, the first 10 years, we were a lot more multi-stage in nature. And then around 2016, we shifted the family's exposure to solely invest in the the funds that write the first institutional check into a startup. And that was really driven by the exploration of of the power law or that the mean return of early stage venture was significantly greater than than that median return. And so we, we came to this conclusion that we needed to shift the family's exposure into early stage venture because venture is the compounding machine for the family. It's really, really interesting where before I dive into the nuances of how we we pick the managers, just to make the comment around, especially given the market environment today, our focus when it comes to investing in asset classes is what is the long-term steady state return? We're multi-period investors. We are not short-term one to two-year investors. And I think a lot of prediction or algorithms that use data to make predictions are focused on the short term, but we're not. We are focused on the long term. So when you look at the long term steady state return of some of the asset classes that we invest in, let's look at the long term CAGR for public markets. That's an 11%. When you look at the long term CAGR for buyout, that's 14%. When you look at the long term CAGR for early stage venture, that's a 25% return. And that is very similar to Yale Endowment CAGR, 
because they've been invested in venture for so long. We think, you know, have tilted as much as they possibly can because they have a lot of money to invest to early stage. So seeing those types of numbers, you know, gave us that confidence that if we are using venture to compound the family's capital, that we want to deploy it all at the early stage. We took a look at, well, where do we deploy our dollars? Because we're not Yale. There's a limitation to how much can actually be deployed in the venture bucket. And so we looked at, okay, first, where are the outliers coming from? And as you mentioned, very geographic specific. So California, New York, they've produced 73% of all the outliers that have exited real DPI in the U.S. If you look at the 600 U.S. unicorns that are private as of today, or I should say as of 4Q, 75% come out of California and New York. We get the conversations with GPs and LPs about, well, what about Miami? And what about Austin? And what about Seattle? And what about Canada? And we think about those other geos and, and we definitely stay close to them. And the network overlay that we'll use in determining, you know, should we invest in this manager or not? Are they front running or co-investing certain brand investors? Are they giving us exposure to Stanford, for example? We don't want to be early in a geography because if we are one of the first investors in that geo and it's not matching the outlier production rate of California and New York, then that means we're wrong. And for us, because we run an endowment style model and do have a payout that goes to the family, that's a percentage of NAV. We have to keep that return stable. It's why we don't not like Austin, Seattle, Canada, Florida, things like that. It's just we rather jump in after it starts to match the return profile of California and New York, for example. Totally makes sense. You don't want to be in the first, second, or third inning of investing in a new territory when the data hasn't been there to back it up. You know, and the counter argument to that, obviously, as a Canadian based fund that invests in the US and Canada, is that, well, obviously, if more capital get, continues to get redeployed into California and New York, then you're going to see 75% of the returns in the industry come from those ecosystems. So somebody has to move first in order to get the Shopify's and the, you know, the bigger name exits here in Canada to really show face that there are other ecosystems that can, can perform well. But for your system of investing, you don't need to be the first, second or third investor. You're okay being the fifth, sixth or seventh year of, a, of an ecosystem shift. Is that correct? Absolutely. And interestingly enough, when you look at our portfolio on a look-through basis, you know, it has a similar geographic exposure to what I target for California and New York, about 75%. So then there's another 25% that's not there. And a great example is one of the first unicorns we caught came from a Stanford-focused founder, and they started it in Denver. So there is a caveat to the geo piece because we do believe in network effects. And a network we target is Y Combinator. And so half of that is international. So it's not a hard and fast rule. And I think a key theme at Veritas is to hold your opinions loosely. And the outliers come out of the tail. I mean, that's that's the power law. And so for us to say, you know, no, because you don't have a track record or no, because you don't fit in our birth. Our, our bucket perfectly, that's not fair. Right. I mean, using history to predict the future is, is good to show you a path, but it's not going to lead the way. And I'm sh I'm assuming it's a rite of passage to work at Virtus to read Sebastian Alloway's book, The Power Law, <laughs> in order to really understand how the model works, right? Definitely. 
Yeah. So, I mean, there were some numbers I saw that your team shared recently, which was like of the 2000 startups that are started a year in the US, you know, only one to two of the 2% of them really become those outliers or unicorns. And as you mentioned, you know, as of Q4 of last year, 73% of the exited unicorns were based in California, New York. So can you give us some other statistics around sort of like how you think about investing in funds that are focused in those areas of California, New York, and what kind of size of investments you're trying to look for when you really only see outliers in one fund every time? So for us, our preference on the general tech side is $100 million or less. We think as you raise larger and larger vehicles, it can be really challenging to deploy all of that at the early stage. And it goes back to our mandate of the venture bucket is multiple focused. So if you invested in the seed round of company X and it sits at an 85X and then you follow it on into the series A and that sits at a 15X, you know, we have those types of conversations with the GP where we said, could you have taken those dollars and deployed more at the seed round and put more capital work at an 85X? Or could you have taken those reserve dollars and used them in an additional seed investment and gotten another 85X? Now, hindsight bias is beautiful. So having to make those decisions at the time can be really, really challenging. So it's definitely a yin and a yang there where, you know, the preference is $100 million. But speaking about Stanford, Stanford's a pricier market. So if we want to target that, we have to recognize that maybe if it's a Stanford-focused fund that can do a lot of deals and, and lead those deals, that they need to be above $100 million. So we'll peel the layers of the onion off and say, okay, how many deals are you doing? Is it enough shots on goal first? And then what is the reserve strategy? I mean, my perfect fund is like 50 deals and no reserves. Because as I mentioned before, if you follow on, you dollar cost average down your multiple. It's really important to make sure we have shots on goal first. And that 50 deals times a 2% outlier production rate, if we're underwriting to the market being random, which we do think it's random, that gives us confidence that there'll be an outlier in that portfolio. And if the GP has any form of picking skill, then that's gravy to us and we're going to catch more winners in that portfolio. We also want that GP to be successful and we recognize how important it is for that GP to catch those outliers in their portfolio, especially because if you're investing in those small funds, the GP is in it for the carry. You, you, those management fees are not really kind of going to cover your retirement plan in life here. Like they can probably barely cover, you know, your rent. So we, we recognize that. And so we really push hard on portfolio construction, but it's not a hard and fast rule because we recognize that different portfolios, different networks, different geos, even different verticals require different types of portfolio construction. And then the caveat to California, New York, $100 million less, 50 deals is 25% of the funds we invest in are in therapeutics. We really, really like therapeutics a lot. That has a 10% outlier production rate. You don't see a lot of winners that would be like a halo-like exit, but you'll see a lot of exits around $500 million to $2 billion dollars. And it really helps put a floor to the overall return of the venture portfolio because there is diversification benefits to having therapeutics in there versus general tech and big pharma has a lot of dollars to to purchase these companies when the IPO window shuts down. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here, Jamie. I mean, we've spoken offline about some of these portfolio construction theories, and I've been adamant at our fund to always have a very first check heavy approach to investing. Obviously, when you say writing 50 checks or more for a company or a fund that's 50 or 100 million, you know, the ownership numbers are a little bit lower uh, than what we were targeting in our funds of a 10 to 15% ownership. But I completely agree with you that having uh, a lower reserve strategy, especially in the last bull market where you may have written, you know, as a, a seed investor, a, a 250 or 500K check just to get in, the foot in the door. But all of a sudden, if that Series A jumps to $100 million because some Tiger Global investor comes in and pours money into the company, that follow-on check that you reserved, let's say it was more than the initial check, so like two or three exercises of your first check, you've just dollar cost averaged up to a really a Series B entry price when you're supposed to be an early stage investor. And so that worked out really well for us in our first two funds. You know, in our first one, we've already returned half the capital and that's not even through, you know, major exits, but like one normal exit and one amazing secondary. So it totally works when you actually have very good entry prices and very good first checks. But maybe can you explain to our audience why you're so adamant about not having a reserve strategy for those dollar cost averages? Because the data you said, it usually underperforms. Is that correct? So I think it's really hard for GPs to know at the time you have to make the decision to follow on if that's really, really going to be a winner. And you can take a look at it, you know, in in the recent few years where, you know, maybe at the time you're like, this is a bull market, crypto all the way, fintech all the way. And so you follow on into those dollars. But seven to eight years down the road, when those companies typically exit, I mean, some have even stayed private for longer. Do you know what the terminal value is? Do you, do you even know if they're going to actually be winners? I mean, we can talk about some of the fintech companies today that are, that are marked at, you know, two to $5 billion, but the conversation is, are they still going to be unicorns? And then would you have been better off taking that follow on dollar and using it in a different seed investment to diversify your risk? Because with a lot of the bull market or the SVB situation, I think that they're, there's huge benefits to being diversified and, you know, looking at the downsides, like you talked about it with your first fund, you've had some exits that aren't considered outliers or probably venture like exits, but by taking enough shots on goal, you're going to have what we call mid tier winners. So for us, we view our underwriting, you know, as 30% total zeros. And if you look at our first seed program, which is 2017 to 2020, that has 1,250 portfolio companies in it from 20 funds. Only 21% of them are marked below a 1x. We underwrote to 30% being zeros. So we haven't seen that yet. But if 30% are zeros and 2% of them are the big winners, you have this mid-tier range, or you have, I guess, 68% that we consider exiting around that mid-tier. So exits in the $75 million to $600 million range that can put a floor to the overall return that you're providing. So if you don't catch a winner, you probably have a buyout-like return because you've done so many deals that you're not going to completely lose money. But if you're very, very concentrated and you followed on heavily into what you thought were winners at the time, you know, and they end up not working out, then it's going to be really hard for you to raise capital in, in the future. And that carry that you were gunning for is not going to exist. So we think about, 
you know, the downside management or reduction in dispersion of returns up at the family level in terms of the VC portfolio, but it also works in a diversified portfolio for an individual GP. Yeah. So we modeled the same way for our fund. We had zero to 25% were the zeros, 50% were going to be the sort of mid-tier exits and 25% were going to be on the top end kind of breakout winners in our fund strategy. And that's how we deploy our capital as well, which makes a lot of sense. You know, but you also mentioned, uh, you know, your thoughts around valuation sensitivity and that VCs who are not overly valuation ownership sensitive tend to outperform. Can you provide some insight and data points on that? The two key things that we've seen in terms of stronger performance is GPs just like us who hold their opinions loosely. So having a GP that put a $75,000 check into a seed round of a company that then they exited out of a year and a half ago at a $30 million valuation and returned well to $30 million, you know, I guess, fair market value of the position and it returned his whole fund. So it was a $27 million fund. He did 120 investments and that 175K check, which he exited, returned the whole fund. Now he probably didn't get the target ownership he was hoping for, but let's be honest with 120 investments, you probably weren't gunning for a large ownership, but it just goes to show that small checks can really, really make a huge impact on your portfolio returns, because what's really hard to model is the expected value or the terminal value at exit. You could tell me confidently that this business model is viable and in two to three years, they'll be cash flow positive. That's wonderful, but I can go invest in buyout too and find businesses that are cash flow positive in two to three years. What you're in it for venture in our portfolio is those huge winners, the expected value of California-based startups that exit at unicorn status is $9 billion. So you're gunning for the big win. And it's so hard to know what that terminal valuation will be at the time of exit. So if you think this is a great company that maybe is a little too expensive, or you can't get your ideal ownership targets, or you can't get the type of board seat that you're looking for, if you still believe in the thesis make the investment. Maybe you have a core and satellite approach within your portfolio where you have core positions and then you have you know, this opportunistic bucket where you don't pass on that type of investment. And then the next key piece I would say that I've seen with funds that are a little more successful is to deploy your dollars faster, not slower, which I know is against the grain in the market right now. But if you have a fund that's that's a 10-year life and you make your last investment at year five, you only have five years worth of compounding versus if you make your last investment at year three, you have seven years worth of compounding. And if I go back to that long-term steady state CAGR I talked about, at 25%, I went seven years at 25%, not five years at 25%. Right. So you must be a big believer in recycling then. Yes. Up to like 120? Absolutely. Because it's very interesting. And this comes down to the conversation that GPs need to have with their LP base is we're taxable investors. So when you send me money back, I have to go pay taxes. And then I have to go find another investment that was clipping that 25% plus CAGR, probably even more to get back to it. You know, I know that selling out early and getting DPI really helps with fundraising and we totally recognize that, but it's just the type of conversation to have with your LP base to see what they actually want. 
No, it totally makes sense. I mean, going back to that example of that 175K check in that company that made 120 investments in the fund of a 25 or whatever million fund, what if that one name gets them the fund returner, but they can't get to 3X DPI in the fund because all the other companies are dog shit? Is that still considered a success in your mind? Yes. So it's it's very interesting because for us, if we invested in a fund that did 50 plus deals and, and low reserves in the networks and geographies that we were looking for, and they caught no winners, but then they went and raised fund two and did the same thesis and they still caught no winners. We would reinvest in fund three as long as you did what you said you were going to do because we believe it will catch up. People have talked about, you know, the example of, you know, investing in Facebook. And if you weren't invested in Excel, I don't know, first six or eight funds, but you ended up investing, you know, continuously through and caught the one that, that did Facebook, you would have been gravy when adding all of them up. So that's how we think about it because some years there's not going to big, be big winners or big outliers in some years there are. And, and it could, it really just goes back to getting consistent vintage year exposure because market timing is really hard. Yeah. I mean, that's really the endowment models. You know, they don't commit for one or two funds. They commit for three, four or five funds because they know it takes a long time to really prove out. But if the manager sticks to their thesis and their promises in that first pitch deck, then you've built that trust and respect to continue to deserve those dollars for more commitments down the road. Correct? Absolutely. You know, I've read that you target about 1,200 plus companies every three years. So allowing allowing those seven years of compounding at 20 plus percent, you know, how do you even manage that much portfolio oversight? What kind of infrastructure have you had to build to even oversee all that? Fortunately, we have an internal CFO and he has two analysts that support him. Um, which can really help with the back office, the operations, the capital calls, the distributions. And so that's super helpful. But by being very data-driven and having a high filtering process, it's really easy to filter through the GPs and, and understand relatively quickly if you meet our profile. But we absolutely treat investment due diligence and operational due diligence the same way we would if we were doing a hedge fund or a buyout fund. But in the very beginning days, we built some code to parse the SEC website. So anytime a venture fund filed Reg D, we'd be notified. We'd input it into our internal database and leverage social media and pitch book and the news to even see if that fund manager could be of interest to us. And so then we basically did a ton of smile and dial and a ton of outbound. And then we tracked all this. We started to track it all in Salesforce legacy product that the family office used. We've started to use a little bit of Airtable. I'd say I'm I'm a a big fan of Airtable and it integrates well with Salesforce. So we get the best of both worlds, I guess. Then once we started investing, a huge, huge pain point was no transparency when we would invest in fund of funds the first 10 years we were doing venture. We used the fund of funds for exposure to the big brand names that we thought we needed access to to get the venture-like returns, but we also got no transparency. We wanted to know what we owned. So we built a portal in-house that basically scrapes the data uh, from the quarterly financial statements that we get. We also leverage PitchBook. We use Python, 
are uh, ChatGPT has been super helpful in improving my Python skills because I'm terrible. Uh, fortunately, my colleague Steve Kim is way better and has been teaching the office about that. And then Power BI to essentially provide transparency into what we own down to the fund and company sector geo level. And it's also a great way to track underweighting exposures to certain sectors. Like last year, we invested in a pre-seed and seed manager that does a third hardware because we were lacking hardware exposure in the portfolio. So I'd say creating the tools to provide the team and the family transparency into what they own has been uh, super helpful in managing the portfolio. That's amazing. I mean, just hearing how a family office thinks about using technology and data and incorporating that into the reporting standards that, you know, we're adhering to as a GP is, uh, is something that's great to hear, uh, family offices doing. I feel like you could teach a course on this to other family offices in our portfolio, uh, who are lacking the ability to keep track of all their investments and all the potential opportunities out there because there's just too much data to consume. So kudos to you guys for doing all that hard work. I know it's taken a long time. You know, I got to ask though, in terms of the picking side of it, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering, well, how do you pick and assess an emerging manager and venture when you don't really have the quantitative metrics to go on and you're really just focusing on the qualitative side? So can you give us a sense of sort of after you've scraped the Reg D filings and start to see a little bit more of the initial data, how do you start to go through whatever's left in the qualitative side when there's not much quantitative stuff to go on? Yeah, so once you've gone through the filtering process of geo, network, uh, sector, and then portfolio construction, a huge lesson learned for us was pushing on what is your long-term firm vision and brand because we're sticky capital. It is costly for us to invest in you and not re-up. And we want to back these GPs for long periods of time. So let's make sure that we are aligned in our thinking. And it's why we push so much on portfolio construction, because we want to understand if you truly believe in the power law, or are you just doing this diversified strategy for your fund one to catch a winner and then go more concentrated or multi-stage? It's also important for us to understand, are you going to have an opportunity fund? Are you going to have a growth fund? And if that's what you choose, we also want to make sure that there's not requirements for if us if we were going to invest in your seed fund, do we have to invest in the late stage or, or opportunity fund? You know, we just need to be much more transparent and upfront about what our mandate is. And we want to make sure that that aligns with the GP too, because this really is a marriage. And so then after we get through that, you know, we really will do a huge <laughs> stress test, if you could, on a venture portfolio. So another tool that we've built is we'll do Monte Carlo analysis on your portfolio, and it goes back to the outlier production rate and the expected value. So if the GP is, you know, say New York only, we'll change the expected value of a winner in New York to about the $5.8 billion that we've seen historically versus if you're California only, the expected value is $9 billion. So we run these internal models and stress test them to see, you know, how that would work based off your portfolio construction. Uh, it's different too for life sciences since that has a different profile. And so then we'll also do the, the references. Uh, we'll validate, you know, the co-investors that we take a look at. We'll chat with other 
LPs, GPs in the community, founders. We'll do background checks. We'll do legal review, which is my least favorite part of due diligence. We would love to create standardized LPAs for emerging managers. So the cost and time that GPs and LPs have to spend going back and forth around legal language would be way less. And then our CFO will will talk to the GPs and do his operational due diligence as well, a chat with the service providers. And I think, you know, given the SVB scenario that, you know, how it played out, I just think that our CFO and the ops due diligence piece will, will be much more important going forward. And, and the intent is to really help institutionalize these GPs because we want to back you for a long time, which means we want you to be successful and raise money. That's fantastic. I mean, what a partnership for an emerging uh, manager to have in someone like you, because that kind of robust due diligence really makes them a better manager for other institutional funds who are looking to invest in them as well. And we've taken that lead as well, going from fund one to two and three with, you know, back office reporting. Yes, I do wish that there was a standardized LPA, but then our lawyers wouldn't be very happy. But I'm sure ChatGPT could write a better LPA than some of our lawyers have. Good thing they don't listen to the podcast. But, you know, <laughs> you know, there's one thing that you talk about, which I think is important, which is you guys say that picking skills as an emerging manager is a nice to have, but it's not necessary. And it's more important to have enough of those shots on net. But I got to ask, in the current markets we're sitting in right now, where managers who had a lot of shots on net and saw a lot of their unicorn valuations get slashed by 50%, does that data still hold up? And does it even matter how many shots they have on net if those top outliers just got slashed by 50 or even worse, recap to 90%? It comes down to the stage that you're investing in. So if you were in the first institutional check into a startup, you were investing at the cheapest entry point possible. So if those unicorns get slashed, if they go down to $200 million, you still went in when it probably was $20 million, $15 million. I guess it depends on the stage, the network, and probably the vintage year on the entry valuation. But, you know, if you went in at that cheapest entry point and you didn't follow on, it's still okay if those unicorns got slashed. And this is analysis that we had done internally around the standard deviation and dispersion of returns in venture. And I think what's going to happen in this post-SVB world and, and maybe post-bull run world is that the dispersion in venture is going to increase. I mentioned before how 21% of our startups are marked below 1x. So that doesn't mean they're zeros. They're just marked down. And we underwrite to 30%. So we've unfortunately have been waiting for the mortality rate to go back to what our underwriting expectations were. You know, and this is where using chat GPT to help us find the syntax to run this type of simulation has been very helpful. Is if you look at the percentage of simulations below the ensemble average based off the standard deviation. If the standard deviation for early stage venture is a 12, 69% of your returns are below the mean. Maybe that's what venture has been today. But if you increase the standard deviation to 16%, 76% of your returns are below the mean. If you increase it to 20%, 80% of your returns are below the mean. And if you increase the standard deviation or the volatility or the dispersion of returns to 24%, which may be where we are today, where maybe a year and a half ago we were at a standard deviation of 12, 84.5% of your returns are below the mean. So that's where 
shots on goal really, really matter. So for us, we're targeting that mean return because if the standard deviation has increased in the current market environment, that means there's going to be a lot of funds or a lot of companies or, you know, a lot of returns back to LPs that are below the mean return. So if you're very concentrated, you have a high probability of capturing the median, not the mean return. So it's really hard to, to think about that because your behavioral biases kick in. But if you can remove them and focus on that long-term steady state and create investment strategies based off those distributions, you should be able to sleep a little bit better at night. Yeah, I mean, for sure, we're sleeping a lot better at night knowing that we've returned capital in our first funds and we're still holding uh, our valuations and getting deals done in this market at great prices, more than where we invested at the pre-seed stage. But yes, there are probably a lot of funds who have deployed all their capital, have not returned any DPI, and are just holding their breast to see if the market recovers back to those valuations in 2020 and 2021. But I got to ask, you know, you mentioned how uh, a VC brand at the earliest stages is important. I mean, what are your thoughts and what does the data show about VC brand at the early stage and at the later stage? Brand and reputation is really, really important in general. Unfortunately, your returns are driven by your deal flow. I think at the at the later stage, you know, for us, we've identified, I guess, what we would call tier one or brand investors that capture the largest share of outliers around that series B and later stage. And so we're looking for first check funds that can front run or co-invest alongside of those. And if my perfect fund is 50 deals and no reserves, that means when you start that brand as a fund one, you need to communicate to founders that you have low reserves and my value add is going to be getting you the follow-on dollars from someone else. Or my value add is because I scaled a company from two employees to thousands and thousands so I can give you experience and and advice around that, but you can't create a brand that has expectations that you're going to follow on unless your strategy is 50, 60% reserves and you take board observer seats or you join the board, create the brand and reputation of the type of firm you want to be in the future starting day one. And I think that's really, really important. I also think for us, when we look at our internal strategy, you know, I'd say our cadence of investments, 70% of them tend to be re-ups and 30% tend to be new GPs. And I think it's important to always add in new GPs to the portfolio because the winners come out of the tails. So even a good example is we are doing due diligence on a fund five this year. We backed him for fund one and a fund five his target is $100 million, it's pre-seed and seed, and a lot of his network has grown significantly. I mean, when you're at a fund five, you have a lot of founders that send you deals, but that means it's also important for us to find a fresh GP that's targeting a pool of founders or startups that's not in my existing portfolio today or that that fund five GP probably doesn't have access to because they have their brand and their reputation of certain founders that get through his filtering process. So it's really important to be cognizant and not so narrow-minded that I must require a track record because then you're going to miss out on the winners. 
That's great advice. I think I thank you very much for sharing that because there's a lot of firms out there who think that they can just win on capital and reserve strategies. And you know, for us, because we're so first check heavy, we we are adamant at telling founders we are going to be your first and most important check, but we're not going to be the one that just keeps funding you all the way. We're going to find the next round of investors to help carry the torch and get you with the best partner at the Series A or beyond. But it's important that you be transparent with founders because if that Series A comes around and you're not writing a check and you tell them, oh, sorry, we don't have any reserves, you know, two years into the relationship, that's really bad from a reputational standpoint. So I totally agree with you. You need to be transparent with the founders on that. You guys are obviously seeing so many funds, but you only invest in around, I believe, 20 to 30 fund managers every three years. So of those, you know, 20 to 30 that you're committing to, how many meetings are you taking every year? And what's the acceptance rate of the ones you meet versus the ones that convert to commitments? I'm taking too many meetings. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be honest, part of what we do is investing in funds and hopefully providing the family with great returns. But the other part of it is providing education and help to the ecosystem. So, you know, again, using some chat GPT and AI, you know, we're trying to do a lot more automation around the meetings and and chatting with prospective GPs, because at the end of the day, we still want to be helpful. There's a lot of funds that we meet and talk to that we learn a lot from, but would never invest in. But at the same time, we know a lot of LPs that would invest in those funds. You know, a byproduct of being a family office and being around for so long is we've met a lot of other allocators that invest in this space. So if we can be helpful and, you know, send GPs, LPs that invest in their strategy, even if we don't, that's great because then sometimes we talk to GPs that are maybe FinTech only or 25 deals only, that don't fit our mandate, but they have a friend that is starting a GP or starting a fund that fits our mandate and they send it our way. So I think it's really important to always be giving back and providing education to the community and explaining why we do what we do, why I want 50 deals in low reserves, why I want California and New York, or why I want therapeutics, because it can be helpful. And even if we don't invest in your fund, if you hold your opinions loosely, like we do, maybe you can make adjustments and it helps you be successful. So I, I'd answer the acceptance rate of investing in new GPs to, if our cadence is around nine funds a year, 30% of them are our new GP relationships. Um, we've passed on re-ups before. So just because you're in the portfolio today doesn't necessarily mean you'll be in the portfolio in the future, but all of those relationships remain cordial and supportive. And we are always happy to send LPs to our existing GPs and GPs we pass on. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, we think the same way with founders that we pass on. In fact, founders that we've passed on have sent us founder friends for us to look at for new investments that we have actually made, which is great when a founder gets a no, but they still want to hear their friends succeed and send them to us. That's the same thing as you saying no to us as a, as a GP, but you have other LPs in your network that may be interested. So I really appreciate that. And, and also speaking so transparently about what you do as a family office is quite rare on the capital allocator side, I must say. Uh, is that something that's changed over the last little bit or are you just taking charge on that? Yes, I would say it's definitely changed. I mean, a lot of family offices, they want to stay very private and and they don't want to be out in the public, but we recognize the benefits of putting ourselves out there and providing education to the ecosystem. And it really showed up during COVID when we were completely virtual and couldn't 
go out in person. I mean, if we hadn't done a ton of smile and dial and in-person visits and conferences and things like that, I would have been worried about deal flow, but deal flow increased during the pandemic because people at least knew who we were. So we could constantly see the new emerging managers that were coming out into the space. Yeah, it's amazing. When you put yourself out there willing to talk to people or offer advice, the numbers just you know explode. We saw 10,000 companies last year. Obviously, our acceptance rate is like 0.01% of that. But just like for you, it gives you more opportunity to see a broader aperture of potential investment opportunities. I want to ask you just currently on the current markets, You know, how is it impacting your family office's decisions on capital commitments? And what else are you seeing out there in the VC world that our listeners should be aware of? I'd say for us, it's, it's steady, Eddie. I mean, probably slowing in terms of making investments today, meaning April of 2023, but not stopping. It's taking a breath and analyzing the portfolio and enjoying the benefit of having time to do due diligence, not having to run for closes all the time. And so I would just say, reiterate the mandate that you're investing for. And if making tactical decisions or making short-term moves benefits your mandate, then then go for it. But for us, we're, we're focused on that long-term steady state return. We're focused on that 25% CAGR. I mean, a 25% CAGR over 12 years is over a 14X. And so for us, we want to be consistently invested in early stage venture. And my advice to other allocators, or if you're fearful of what's happening in venture today, you know, we took a look at the worst three vintage years in early stage venture. And if you had invested in the worst three, what, what would your return have been? I mean, that's what we did post SVB. And if you were diversified, the, the mean TVPI is a one, you would have gotten your money back. If you were concentrated, you would have lost 25% of your capital and been at a 0.76 DPI. So it's just making sure that you're consistently investing in venture and having the strategy mimic the mandate. Yeah, it's great advice and great lessons for other capital allocators and family offices out there. Stay consistent. Don't be tourist capital. And don't try to just pick one, two, or three of the best you think are going to return because the numbers don't lie and you guys have the data to prove it. So I appreciate you sharing all that with us. You know, before we wrap things up, we always like to ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. So I listen to a variety of podcasts. I'd say a lot of them tend to be music, but you know, one of my favorite when it comes to venture is Village Global. Nice. That's a great one. Besides yours, of course. Of course. Yes, of course. Thanks, Jamie. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. I would say my favorite blog is the LifeSci VC, which is Bruce uh, Booth's blog. Uh, we do 25% therapeutics investing. And when we started doing those types of investments, I knew nothing about life sciences. So it's a very educational blog if that interests you. That definitely interests me. It's like when I listen to the Huberman Lab podcast, which I love, but I barely understand any of the technical stuff he's speaking about, but I still listen to it. It makes me feel healthier and smarter, I guess. <laughs> Next is your favorite tech gadget. Uh, I have to say my brand new Tesla Model Y. Nice. Congratulations. All right. Where's the farthest you've driven it? Not very far, (laughs) but that's probably because it's about a week old. So Okay. Well, when you do your first uh, cross-country tour, you got to post about that for sure. Favorite new trend? This is probably so cliche, but chat GPT, but in terms of using it for the tools and the models that that we're looking to build. I mean, to do that type of standard deviation simulation that we did, that would have taken four 
ever if I was Googling around and trying to figure it out, but leveraging chat GPT to provide the syntax and, and using it to, you know, even essentially ingest our memos or ingest our analysis and ask it questions. It's just creating a lot more efficiencies within the family office and, you know, has, has, a lot of time savings that I'm enjoying. That's really cool. Have you sat down with like the head of Gen 7, you know, and showed them what it does or are they still kind of just taking the output and accepting it as real? Um, so in the family office, there's 13 of us and only one of them is a family member. Uh, that's Gen 8. And so we have showed uh, chat GPT within the office and are trying to get the full office to be involved in, and test it out. I love those moments. Next is your favorite book. So my favorite book, uh, I, well, I should say it's maybe one and a half favorite books. My favorite is Thinking and Bets by Annie Duke, uh, but I'm midway through Quit, which is her recent book that she published, which is basically The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Kind of like yes. uh, when you knew that walking away from your prior role, because it was going to be com- replaced by computers, uh, <laughs> is something you're trying to get ahead of on the next wave, maybe. Exactly. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. So this is probably no surprise based off my favorite book being Thinking and Bets by Annie Duke. But essentially, there are two things that determine how our lives turn out, the quality of our decisions and luck. And, you know, there are elements of luck and skill in virtually any outcome. And I don't think you can control luck. The world is a pretty random place, as you can see how we deploy our venture strategy So I think it's really important to focus on making the highest quality decisions that you can. So basically focus on what you can control because the other 90% is totally out of your control. A hundred percent. Which is a a great way to live. So thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Jamie Rode, Principal at Virtus Investment Management. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 